take your Bibles out and turn with me this morning back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our study in the most famous sermon of all times, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We've been in the Beatitudes looking at the inward qualities that uh, God wants to form in each of our hearts. And then last time we looked at this passage, we saw the influence that we have. If we live out the Beatitudes, we will be salt and light. Well, let's continue this morning and uh, seeing how Jesus urges us to have a proper attitude toward the Word of God. So if you would find verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read down through verse 20. Good to see everybody here today, and as you find your place in your copy of God's Word, let me take just a moment to thank all of those who were involved in any way Last week in our special mission celebration, I was so proud of the work that our mission team uh, had done and all the long hours and preparation they had put into that. And uh, it was a great Sunday last week celebrating uh, different ways that we are involved in, in missions, beginning right here in Concord with our Jerusalem and then moving out to our Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost ends of the world. So let me just say a special thank you to all of those who made last week uh, possible. Stand for the reading of God's Word, please. And again, we'll be reading verses 17 down through verse 20. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but rather to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, we thank you for these beautiful words of the Lord Jesus. As he taught on the hillside that day to his disciples. And Father, I pray that you would enable each of us to understand the true impact of what he was saying. A relationship with you has to begin first and foremost through that new birth experience. The transformation that you do on the inside of a man or a woman. And then that being in place, we are to live out the gospel. Lord, help us to be a people who do that. And as we see this morning, help us to be a people of the book. Living by your word and sharing your word with others. So that they too can come to an understanding of you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Floyd Snyder in his book published in the year 2000, entitled Evangelism for the Faint-Hearted, tells the following story. 
A Christian university student shared a room that year with a Muslim. The two became friends and pretty soon their conversation turned to their respective beliefs. The Christian asked the Muslim if he had ever read the Bible. The Muslim said no, but I would ask you the same question. Have you ever read the Quran? The Christian said no, but I'm sure it would be interesting. He said, I'll tell you what. Why don't we read both the Bible and Quran together once a week, alternating books? Well, the young Muslim accepted that challenge. Through the coming weeks, their friendship deepened, and during the second term, the Muslim became a follower of Jesus Christ. One evening late in the term, he burst into the room and he shouted at the longtime believer, You deceived me. The Christian said, What are you talking about? The new believer opened his Bible and said, I've been reading through this book the way you challenged me to, and I've just read in the book of Hebrews where it says that the Word of God is living and active and powerful. He grinned. You knew all along that the Bible contained God's power and that the Quran is only a book like any other. Why, I never had a chance. The Christian said, so are you going to be angry at me now? The former Muslim said, no, but you've got to admit it was never a fair contest. I'm reminded of Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 where he comments that the world over time is going to get worse and worse. And the last days are going to be dangerous days and even perilous days. But he says to Timothy, Timothy, you however are not like that because you have followed my example. And you've read the Holy Scriptures, the Scriptures that are able to lead you to faith in Christ. And then from there, Paul goes on to commend to Timothy that Timothy continue to saturate his life with the Word of God. He says, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You hear what he's saying there, folks? The Scripture, first of all, tells us what we need to know in order to be saved. It points out our sin and our need of a Savior because we cannot save ourselves. And after coming to faith in Jesus, the Bible tells us that we need to continually have our lives rooted in the Word of God because the Word of God will equip us for the ministry that God has for us. I'm reminded of Paul's words to the Romans in Romans 1. He said, this is why I'm eager to come to you and preach the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Folks, there's power in the Word of God. As we come to our text today, we see that those around Jesus might have been led 
they might have been led to have begun to question his commitment to the Scripture. Now I want you to think of several events that have happened and are about to happen that might have led them to question Jesus' commitment. I think of that time that Jesus was walking through the grain fields with his disciples and his disciples began to pluck the the heads of grain. And the religious leaders came along and told Jesus, you need to make your disciples stop plucking grain on the Sabbath because what they are doing is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to them, do you not understand that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath? On another occasion, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and again the religious leaders didn't like that. They said, it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And, and he said, do you not realize it's, it's okay to do good on the Sabbath? Do you yourselves not uh, take an ox? If you have an ox that falls in the ditch, do you not get the ox out of the ditch? And then Jesus would also say to them on another occasion, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. And so naturally, not only the Pharisees, but some of the followers of Jesus might have been wondering in their minds what Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament was. Was he going to continue his commitment to it? Well, in these verses we read today, Jesus leaves no doubt in anybody's mind. In fact, he urges a proper respect for and adherence to the Word of God. In some of the strongest language in the New Testament, he leaves no doubt in mind what the disciples' attitude is to be to the Scripture. First thing I want you to see with me this morning from verse 17 is Jesus' respect for the Word of God. There in verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Look at that word, abolish. The Greek word kataluo, it it literally means to destroy, to cast down. To do away with. Jesus right from the beginning of his public ministry wants everybody to know his position on the scripture. He has not, he has certainly not come to abolish, to cast aside the law and the prophets. Now folks, to say the law and the prophets at this time would have been a summary of all of the Old Testament. All 39 books of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, in no way have I come to abolish that. And we're going to see in a moment an even stronger statement that he's going to make in regards to this. But you know, there are some today who would like communion. They would love to have communion with God apart from His Word. Now folks, if we're disciples of Jesus, you and I need to understand what the Bible is teaching us, that it doesn't work that way. You and I cannot have a relationship with God apart from His Word because apart from His Word, we would not even know how to worship Him. 
The Bible says in Romans 1 that we have natural revelation to know that there is a God. Even the psalmist said the heavens declare the glory of God. And Romans 1 says also God's put a knowledge of himself in our conscience, in the human heart. That's natural revelation. But we need special revelation. We need the written word and the living word, the Lord Jesus himself, to understand what a relationship with God entails. Because if not, you know what we're going to end up doing? We're going to end up thinking that we can worship God on our own terms. The old Burger King motto, have it your way. It doesn't work that way. And that's why God led Israel out of Egypt and there at, at Mount Sinai he gave them the Ten Commandments and then in the, in the first five books of the Bible he laid down all of his laws that his people might know how to relate to him and how to worship him in spirit and in truth because he said you are to be different from the nations. The nations did not know how to worship God and so they would make idols and images of themselves and works of their own creation and God said no you're to be different from them and so in order to be different from the nations God gave his word to his people Jesus said I've not come to change that I've not come to abolish that folks I think of how different you and I are from the Lord Jesus if we are ever dismissive of the word of God I want you to think a moment about how God's Word is viewed today. E even our whole legal system, the foundation of it at least built on many of the commands in the Bible and, and, and the Ten Commandments themselves. But today society wants to be so dismissive of the Word of God. You go out in many public places and they want the Word of God stripped away from anything public. I found it interesting an illustration John MacArthur in his exposition on Matthew gave about this very thing. He said, in a book titled, The Interaction of Law and Religion, Harold J. Berman, professor of law at Harvard University at one time, developed a significant thesis. He notes that Western culture has had a massive loss of confidence in law and religion. One of the most important causes uh, of this double loss of confidence is the radical separation that's been made between the two. Berman concludes that you can't have workable rules for behavior without religion because only religion provides an absolute basis on which morality and law can be built. He fears that Western society is doomed to relativism in law because of the loss of an absolute. And we're seeing that very thing. When men break away from the idea of an authoritative religion and even from the concept of God, he says, they break away from the possibility of absolute truth. Their only remaining resource is existential relativism, a slippery, unstable, and ever-changing base on which no authoritative system of law or morals can be built. Religionless law can never command authority. In that same book, Berman notes that Thomas Frank of New York University has observed that law, in contrast to religion, has become nothing more than an openly 
pragmatic human process. It's made by men and lays no claim to divine origin or eternal validity. Frank observes that in this process a judge in reaching a decision is not propounding a truth but is rather experimenting in the solution of a problem and if his decision is later reversed by a higher court or if it's subsequently overruled that does not mean it was wrong but only that it was or became in the course of time unsatisfactory. Having broken away from religion, Frank states, law is now characterized by existential relativism. Indeed, it is now generally recognized that no judicial decision is ever final. Dr. Berman goes on to ask, if law is merely an experiment and if judicial decisions are only educated hunches and nothing more, why should individuals or groups of people observe those legal rules or commands that don't conform to their own interest? Wow. Do you hear what he's saying? Not a Baptist preacher, but a Harvard Law professor at one time. Do you hear what he's saying? When God is abandoned, truth is abandoned. And when truth is abandoned, the basis for morals and law is abandoned. Folks, we continually hear today that times have changed and so the Bible doesn't fit our day anymore, but actually just the opposite is the case. The Bible is God's perfect, infallible word and the Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not and so His word changes not. Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. As Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes in his exposition of this text, he says, just read the four Gospels for yourselves and notice how often Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. He writes, you can come to one conclusion only, namely that Jesus believed it all. Not just certain parts of it, all of it. And he quoted from all the various parts of it. To the Lord Jesus Christ, the Old Testament was indeed the Word of God. Lloyd-Jones goes on to point out, when you find somebody today who is dismissive of the Bible or rejects the Bible, you have really come across somebody who has problems with the Lord Jesus himself. As he says so powerfully, if we say that we do not believe in the account of creation as the Bible states or in Abraham as a literal person, if we do not believe that the law was given by God to Moses, if we say that, we are in fact flatly contradicting everything that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said about himself, the law, and the prophets. Folks, do you realize it is even the Word of God itself that gives form and foundation to our worship life and our prayer life? Because again, as I said earlier about Israel, they had to know how God expected them to worship Him. If we did not have the Bible, we would not even know what is acceptable or not in worship. And so we might worship God in some idolatrous way. 
And our prayer life is the same. If we didn't have the Scripture to guide us in our prayer life, we might end up asking for things that were not according to the will of God, but in fact against the will of God. Jesus said, I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What do you mean by that? I just want to point out two things. There's more than two, but just two. First of all, when he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, it means he, can, he, he perfectly obeyed it. In the garden, the first Adam broke the law of God. Adam and Eve transgressed the law of God. They broke the law of God. And from Genesis 3 onward, we have the fall of man. And, and we see all that happens in the world today. Paul says, sin itself has even entered into the very cosmic order. It, it affects everything. He point, Paul points out in Romans 5 that in the first Adam, sin entered into the world and we all die because we all sin. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But as he points out there, the second Adam, Jesus came to obey all the law, to fulfill the law, and righteousness came into the world through him. And so you are either today in, still just in Adam or you're in Christ. Those who are still just in Adam, the first birth only, you die. And the scripture, when it says you die, it means not just physically, but even spiritually. And that's what those are in Adam. But those in Christ live because Christ is in them. And he fulfilled the law. Folks, there's huge implications in this for the gospel. Don't miss it. Jesus came perfectly fulfilled the law, lived in perfect obedience, and because of that, he was able to go to the cross and die there on the cross in your stead and in my stead. 1 Peter 3.18 says, The just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. You see, had Jesus not perfectly fulfilled the law and the prophets, had he been a sinful man like everybody else, his death on the cross would have been nothing more than just a benevolent gesture of love. A man laying down his life for others, and his death on the cross would have had no saving effect whatsoever. But because he fulfilled the law and the prophets and lived in perfect obedience, he was able to be your sin sacrifice and my sin sacrifice. Also, he came to fulfill the law in the sense that it all pointed forward to him. It all pointed forward to him. He's what it was all about. Folks, do you remember after his resurrection how he was walking on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples and he began opening the scripture to them and showing them how from Moses and the prophets it all pointed to him. And I remember that sermon, the first sermon that Jesus ever preached in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. You remember the attendant 
gave him the scroll. And Luke 4 says he opened the scroll and he opened it up to the passage for the day, which was Isaiah 61. And in Isaiah 61, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah 61 was speaking of the suffering servant who would be the Messiah who would come and deliver God's people. And Luke 4 says that Jesus rolled up the scroll that day and he looked at those in attendance and he said, do you understand today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing? Wow. They got angry because they knew exactly what he was implying. He was implying the truth that they wouldn't accept. Isaiah 61 was speaking of God's Messiah and Jesus was saying to them, I'm here, I've arrived. They wanted to kill him that day. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets in the the sense that it all points to him. Folks, think of all of those laws in the Old Testament. Think of all of the offerings. Think of all of the sacrifices. All of the holidays, the tabernacle itself, the altar, the showbread, the vessels, the high priest. Read all about it, for instance, in the book of Leviticus. And then from the book of Leviticus, turn over in the New Testament to the book of Hebrews to see how it all pointed to Christ. When you take the book of Leviticus and you take the book of Hebrews and you lay them side by side, it is like taking a bow and a violin and laying the two down beside one another side by side because everything the book of Leviticus talks about, the book of Hebrews says, has been fulfilled in Christ. The connection is so strong that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote something in his exposition on these verses that, that I'd never thought of before, but you know he's right. He said he had come to the conclusion that it is not a good thing to do when we see copies of the New Testament by themselves without the Old Testament. Now, folks, we've all got one of those. I've got a bunch of them. A copy of the New Testament without the Old Testament. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, you can't go to a mission field where folks don't know anything about the story of the Bible. They don't know anything about Jesus. And you have a New Testament only. And you open up to Matthew chapter 1. And you try to begin there without all of the foundation of the 39 books of the Old Testament. And that person is going to be lost. They're not going to understand. You're at least going to have to tell the story that leads up to Matthew chapter 1. Folks, I want you to think of the importance of what Jesus is saying here. Go home this afternoon, read Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10 together and the contrast it's making. 
how, how the Old Testament high priest would first of all have to make a sacrifice of sin for himself. Because he was a sinful man just like the people. And then after making the sacrifice for himself, then he would walk into the temple and he would walk through the first room and, and then he would go into the second room behind the veil into the Holy of Holies. And there in the Holy of Holies, one time a year only, he would present an offering, the blood of a lamb or a bull or a goat. He, he would present the blood there on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies one time a year for the sins of the people. And it had to be done over and over and over and over again. And then the book of Hebrews goes on to say, but with Christ it was different. He did not have to present a, a, a sin offering for himself because he's the sinless Lamb of God. And he did not simply walk through the earthly tabernacle, but the writer of Hebrews says, when he died on the cross and the veil was torn in two, he went into that heavenly tabernacle and, and through the veil and into the Holy of Holies before God himself, and he presented himself as the offering for sin. His own blood as that once for all sacrifice that never, ever, ever has to be redone. And all of the Bible was in anticipation of that day coming. And Jesus said, I'm here not to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill the law and the prophets. I love the illustration Dr. Kent Hughes gives of this. He says the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament times pointed to Jesus. In his experiments, he says... Ivan Pavlo would ring a bell whenever he fed his dogs. Eventually the dogs would salivate whenever they heard the bell. They knew the bell meant food for them. Then he goes on to draw the analogy. The sacrifices of the Old Testament prepared the people by instilling in them the conditioned reflex that sacrifice meant death. And the Old Testament sacrifices prepared them for the Lord Jesus' death when he came to die for their sins. Jesus fulfilled what the sacrificial system had pointed to. You hear what Ken is saying? Ken Hughes? Those, oh, those Old Testament sacrifices they were making should have uh, made them salivate almost, yearning, a yearning when the true Messiah would come who would fulfill all of those sacrifices they were offering and render those sacrifices not needed anymore. Everything in the Old Testament should have, every time they celebrated a, a festival, every time they made an offering, every time they observed a special holiday, it, it should have created within them this anticipation of the Messiah when he would come one day. And Jesus is saying, that's why I've come. No more shadows. No more types. No more ongoing sacrifices. The salivating is over. The anticipation is over. Because the one who is the bread of life is here. Come and dine. 
He didn't come to abolish. He didn't come to throw away. He didn't come to cast aside. He came to fulfill. Second thing I want you to see with me. The permanence of the Word of God. The permanence of the Word of God. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says here that that more permanent than the world itself is the Word of God. He uses the illustration uh, of literally from the Hebrew, the jot and the tittle. Here the ESV translates the Greek, an iota, not a dot. It's a jot or a tittle. Now the average English-speaking person would probably have no idea what Jesus is talking about here. But the smallest Hebrew letter was the jot. And the tittle was just a stroke of a pen, almost like an apostrophe or an accent mark or something that we would make. Wasn't even a whole letter. Just a, a, a little, uh, uh, in, in the Hebrew language, a distinguishing accent over, over a letter. Jesus is saying, all of heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle. He says, I'm going to show you something here about God's Word and how you need to, to view it. I'm going to give you a small, insignificant letter to think about, the jot. No, 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 no. I'm going to do better than that. Not only do I want you to focus on the jot, how about just the tittle? It'd be like if I stood up here to say to you, let's not think about a book of the Bible. Let's not think about a chapter in a book of the Bible. Let's not even think about a single passage. Let's not even think about a single phrase. Let's not even think about a single word. Let's find the probably the most insignificant little English letter, uh, lowercase i. And make sure you put a dot over it. And Jesus is saying that in, in the analogy with his word, all of heaven and earth, this entire globe, everything will pass away, but not that little eye with the dot over it. The permanence of the word of God. The psalmist said, your word, O Lord, stands written forever in the heavens. Folks, compare what Jesus just said about the Word of God to hear what you hear so oftentimes today. Think about how oftentimes today the Bible in the public square is belittled. I read something this week about America's history and it, it made me think about all this. The deist Thomas Paine once said, Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. Now let me give you the background of that statement. America was in trouble. Seven years of war for independence had taken their toll morally and spiritually. Drunkenness was widespread. An estimated 300,000 out of 5 million were dependent on alcohol. 
Dueling with pistols had become a national fad. Fear of assault made women reluctant to go out at night. Bank robberies were a common experience. The number of illegitimate births was soaring. As a massive number of people rushed to settle the West, life on the frontier was rough, crude, and often intolerant and, and turbulent. The spiritual state of the United States was at a low ebb, where 40 to 50 percent of the population had attended church in the 1770s. Estimate in the 1790s were as low as 5%. The deist, Tom Paine, gloated. Christianity is done for. It'll be forgotten within 30 years. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote to Bishop Madison of Virginia, the church appears to be too far gone to ever be redeemed. A poll taken at Harvard University uncovered no students willing to say that they were Christians. Princeton discovered only two students. Yale discovered five. Churches in the settled areas of the East battled with internal divisions and low morale while on the frontier they were few and far between. As one preacher lamented, how many thousands never saw, much less read, or ever heard even a single chapter of the Bible? Okay, that's the background, okay? Now the rest of the story, okay? In New England, a Baptist preacher named Isaac Bacchus. You ever heard that name? Sure you have. Isaac Bacchus called Christians to pray and read their Bibles, and they began to set aside the first Monday of each month for that purpose. A committed follower of Jesus named Timothy Dwight was named president of Yale. The students challenged him to a debate on the Scriptures. Dwight's presentation of the Gospel on that occasion, and in the years that followed resulted in a third of the student body professing faith in Christ by 1802 and launching a movement of the gospel across university campuses. On the frontier, preachers such as James McCready began to pray and preach. Soon, tens of thousands were being swept into the kingdom of God in a powerful moving of God's Spirit. The second great awakening reshaped America in the early years of the 19th century. In the first four decades of the century, America's population increased fourfold. Church membership increased tenfold. God's word, he writes, was the spark of revival. People have a disdain for the Bible. Yet the Bible is still the best-selling book. I checked this week by one researcher who said even in the past five decades of increasing secularization, the Bible is still by far the most, the best-selling book in the world. Voltaire, the French atheist, said, The Bible will be gone within 100 years after I die. Voltaire Voltaire died in 1778. You're sitting with a copy of the Bible in your hands this morning. 
Jesus is saying something even deeper, though, and more profound. Don't miss what he's saying. While we could come up with illustration after illustration of the Bible being around, Jesus is saying that God will actually bring about, he will accomplish everything written in the Bible without fail. So it's not simply a testimony to the pages of the Bible being around, but it is a testimony that God will accomplish everything written on the pages. And that's a stronger testimony. Now folks, that was the view of the Scripture that the Lord Jesus had. I want to ask you this morning, do you have the view of Scripture of the Lord Jesus? Dare you and I have a view of Scripture less than that of the Lord Jesus? I certainly hope not. He gave testimony here to the permanence of it that all heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot, not one tittle of God's Word will pass away. God will be faithful to bringing it all to pass. Last thing I want you to see with me this morning. The disciples' warning concerning the Word of God. Look at verses 19 and 20. In 19 and 20, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Folks, what is the disciples' attitude toward the Word of God to be? If Jesus' attitude was the permanence of, what's my attitude to be? What's your attitude to be? Notice what Jesus says here. You want to be considered great in the kingdom of heaven? Then love the Word of God, live it, and teach it. You want to be least, diminish it. In fact, John in 1 John chapter 2 says a commitment to the Word of God and obedience to it is even a sign of the new birth. John says, hereby we know that we have come to know Him because we keep His commandments. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven defined. Now listen, listen to this folks. Everybody who serves today in the church, everybody who serves anywhere in the world on the mission field, Jesus says, you want to be considered great in the kingdom of heaven? Then embrace God's word and teach it. Even the least of these, he's, his commands. Given what he says here, why in the world would anybody want to do anything in church other than be faithful to the Word of God? I like what Dr. Adrian Rogers used to say. He said, on the one hand, I'm too dumb to preach anything but the Bible. On the other hand, I'm too smart. And what he meant by dumb, he said, I've got to stand up here before the congregation week in and week out, many different times in the course of a week, and I've got to prepare a message. He said, I'm not smart enough to go out there in the world and gather something together and every week, multiple times, have something to share with people. 
But he said, I'm too smart to preach anything other than the Word of God because it is only the Word of God that God uses to bring about transformation in the hearts of His people. I close with this. 1994, researchers made available a new computer program entitled The Visible Man. The Visible Man. The Visible Man consists of approximately 2,000 computer images. To produce the images, scientists at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center took a man's body that had been donated to science. They took his body, they took CAT scans of it, they took x-rays of it, they took MRI images of it. And then they embedded the body with gelatin. Then they froze it. And they sliced it crosswise into 1,800 millimeter thin sections and digitally photographed each cross section. Medical students can look at the visible man from any angle. They can call up an image from any cross section that they desire. They can rotate the images and then they can put the visible man back together. Folks, what the visible man does for the body, the Word of God does for the soul. The writer of Hebrews said the Word of God is powerful and living and pierces to the very soul, judging even the thoughts and intents of the heart. Amen. Something that can do that, what's my attitude to be towards it? Jesus is warning us that if we want to be great in the kingdom of God, we take his word and we're faithful to it. And not just on the externals, the appearances of it all. Jesus went on to say your righteousness has got to be further than that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. See, to them it was just external, all ceremonial, and how do I look? But Jesus is talking about something here where the Spirit of the living God takes the Word of God, works on a man's heart, changes a man from the inside out. Has that, has that ever happened with you? I want to ask you to bow your heads in prayer with me. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you today for your word whereby you reveal yourself to us. We could not know you in truth without your word. The conscience is important, but it's not enough. Creation is important, but it's not enough. Thank you for your word. We thank you also for sending your Son to fulfill everything written in your Word. We thank you for His sinless nature, allowing Him to be our sin sacrifice. We thank you that He's the reality behind all the shadows and types of the Old Covenant. 
and fulfilling those types, he walked not simply into an earthly sanctuary, but the heavenly one to present forever the sacrifice of himself so that a sacrifice for sin never has to be made again. God, I pray for that one today who does not know Christ. That they would come to him and believe upon him. Help them not to be like the Pharisees who had everything in the Old Covenant written for them. But they still missed the Messiah when he finally arrived. Lord, I pray also for those who have placed their faith in in Christ. May we always take your word and build our lives and relationships upon it. May our worship and our prayers be based upon it. May we understand today that your word will endure though all else around us collapses. You will be true to your word. May we make it the compass for our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.